Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., Wednesday mornings for the special edition of Tell Me Your Story at 9 a.m. Pacific Time are all those times, streamed live at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and other locations that you folks are reposting us to. And thank you for doing that. We are also on YouTube. That's right. We're on YouTube where you can watch these interviews, and we hope that you will watch these interviews. You just never know what you'll see or hear, and we thank you so much for doing so. We also thank those of you who have supported the work that we're doing here financially through our PayPal account, which is there for your security as well as ours. If what we're doing resonates with you, we'd love to make you a part of what we're doing here through the, the, we'll call it monetary energy that you can send our way, and we'll take regular energy as it were as well. Just send it on. We greatly appreciate all support. And we also hope that you will participate in the decade of perfect vision. It is the 2020s, and we ask you to spend that time going within, spending that quiet, peaceful time listening to that still, small voice. I'm Richard Dugan, and I am your host, and today we're going to be talking with uh, our very special guest who's going to talk to us about how to, uh, well, actually, he's going to talk to us about aligning the dots, the new paradigm to grow any business. And, of course, lots of folks, uh, as we are uh, working our way out of this situation that we found ourselves in in 2020, which was, for us, the year of perfect vision going within, we are um, we're coming out the other side, little by little. Just be patient. We'll, we'll come out the other side and be in what still will be called the new normal because uh, things will have changed. People will have discovered that, you know what, I like doing things this way rather than the old way, and I'm going to keep doing that. And we'll find out if... That's part of the process with uh, Philip Buis, and I thank you so much for joining us on the program. You're coming to us from where? I am based here in Palo Alto in the Bay Area. Ah, so you're up uh, not too far, I think. Am I correct? Because I don't have a map in front of me. Silicon Valley? That's right, yes. It's the heart of Silicon Valley. The heart of Silicon Valley. And I guess it's beating very well these days. Yes, Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. I think Thanks that for having me, it's a pleasure. We're going to have a very interesting conversation. Um, I will say that I had a business for about a year back in 1990. What was it? 93, 94. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to file taxes, uh, I f- didn't even realize that I, there were a bunch of other forms that I had to fill out. And when it was all said and done, just to cut to the chase, I owed the government three thousand dollars. Uh I'm going, what? How is this even possible? I'm the only one doing this. Well, you know, paid them, you know, got that all taken care of and said I'd never do that again until, A, I had an accountant who would take care of and make sure that all of that was taken care of during the year um, because I didn't want to go through that again. And that's just one of the small areas, I'm going to say small, that we have to deal with. But there's also... A new mindset that I think, am I correct, has been developed, so to speak, or discovered uh, by business, old and new, um, because of or in spite of or because of the pandemic? 
Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that the pandemic has reset and really reframed the way we conduct business. You know, because now, you know, for over a year, I was very hard impossible to meet face to face with people. You had to reinvent the way to continue being successful and doing your business in a new way of communications, which is, you know, Zoom and, and phone and, and other means. So I think I think it's made us aware that going to a physical location every day, there we go. you know, is not necessarily mandatory. You can actually successfully conduct business by different means. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that the pandemic has actually uh, invited some entrepreneurs to think about creating new business completely differently that they probably would have never thought about if we didn't have the pandemic. So I guess it's one silver lining of having the pandemic, um, you know, and that fostered and, and, you know, encouraged that creativity that would not have existed otherwise. I don't know about you, uh, Philip, but I felt back in March of 2000, that we had some opportunities coming our way we didn't even know existed back then. Uh, was was that your uh, was that a thought that went through your mind as someone who is is helping us to and and of course sort of using our phrase here looking for new paradigms for a new world. You've got new paradigms for a new business world, so to speak. Yeah, I think that uh, you know in March and April of last year of 2020. What we observed is that, you know, from a business standpoint, everything kind of froze. You know, people say, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? My employees can't even walk into the office anymore. So I think it took about two months before people started to realize that, hey, this is going to stay for a while. Um, we have to we have to find a way we cannot stop doing business. Uh, that would be the end of it. Uh, we have to find a new way to engage. We have to find a new way to sell. We have to find a new way to develop products, to support products, to bring to market products. And I think that that triggered a lot of creativity. You know, people reinvented their business. People retooled their business. We thought about it. People that have been doing business for 20 years never really thought about it, thinking that 2020 would be, you know, yet another year. Uh, like before, and and those people realize, you know, my God, I can't do this anymore. I have to do it differently, otherwise the business won't survive. So I think that forced creativity changes is something that human beings tend to not like. But at the same time, you know, once you understand you have no choice, then you adapt and you survive and you thrive, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, let me uh, ask you, uh, before we go much further, uh, what website would you want people to go to to find out more about the work that you're doing? We want to talk more, of course, about uh, uh, aligning the dots, which is an interesting turn of phrase. But uh, first of all, tell us where on the web we can find you and the work you're doing. Well, I think I think the easier is to go to aligningthedots.com. I mean, that's mm -hmm. probably the easier way to remember. It's, it's my website about the book, but also there is contact information and there is more information about, you know, why I wrote this book. What is the book about? You know, should you read that book? What would it do to you? Um, those kinds of information. Aligning the dots. Now, what's interesting is that I said it was a sort of a play on words because a, a lot of times when we're trying to come up with innovation, uh, we use the phrase outside the nine dots. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or outside the box, as it were. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the 21st century way of doing business, because that's where we are now and, and things are different, whether, you know, and this is one of the frustrations I'm sure maybe you have had to deal with, has been the, the 
old school way of doing things. Um, and whether you want to admit it or not, we are in a global market, right? I mean, you, you can't you can't cordon yourself off as a city, a state or a nation anymore. You, we're in whether you like it or not. We're not in the horse and buggy era anymore. OK, this is the 21st century, right? That is absolutely right. Is that a mindset that are, are you finding uh, some resistance in that regards? No, no, no. That's not the way the way we've always done it is the way we're always going to do it. Do you still find that out there? I think there is some of that. Yes. But again, I think that the pandemic has forced people to get out of their grooves and start thinking about doing things differently. Um you know, the reason we as a species, as, as human beings, are, are dominating the planet is not because we're smarter, not because we have a big brain, uh, but it's because we had the ability to adapt, you know, and adapting to new constraints, new markets, new forces is really critical. And uh, you, you're right that you cannot think of a business without thinking globally today. It's just you just can't. You would, never, you would not be successful. So... Adapting and changing is is painful and is hard, but you have no choice. And and people would denies would deny the uh, the globality of the business and and you know the new technology and the new way of thinking are just not going to be successful anymore. They just can't. Would you say that? Uh, and this is one of the issues that, of course, um, was a big issue uh, in in the the 2016 uh, presidential campaign was. Uh, and it was labeled as nationalism mm -hmm. and that, you know, uh, and also I, I, I saw what I saw and heard was this victimhood. It's everybody else's fault that these problems that I see exist. Right. And I, I just sat there going, why is it everybody else's fault? Maybe there are some things that we could do better. Absolutely. Because there's you would agree there's always room for improvement. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's like, wait, you know, it was as if that was a, on a national level, a huge resistance to the reality that this is not, it's becoming not that we want it, but it is a global market. Um, do you think that that has hurt us as uh, citizens of this country, citizens of the given States we live in and, and as a nation, in terms of the actual global market out there that it's like, well, I don't know if I want to do business with the folks in America. Yeah, I know it's a global market, but, you know, they they have a whole different old world mindset. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there is no doubt that it has hurt the country, the U.S., the United States. And, and I think there's two reasons. One is that Europe and Asian countries are looking at things that we committed to prior to the Trump administration. And then Trump, you know, for whatever reason, decided to back away or change. So there is a fundamental trust question. Should I, as a country, should I trust the United States when every four years there's a new administration? And I don't know if, the, if what we agreed on today will sustain four years from now, eight years from now, 12 years from now. Um, so th there is a real question there. Yeah. I think back to your point about, you know, blaming others. Um, it is a very natural process for human beings when there is a problem 
to start looking around and say, okay, well, the problem is coming from whom? And you just look around and you pick somebody or a country or, or something, as opposed to saying, well, do we recognize we have the problem? Are we framing the problem in the right way? And then what role have we played in that problem? And what role can we play in solving that problem? So that would be the best way to tackle the problem. And to do that at the planet level, I mean, like global, you know, the, the climate change cannot be solved by any of one single country. We all have to get together and say, this is a problem that's going to affect all of us. How do we solve it? Same with the pandemic, by the way. Um, so until and unless that happens, that mindset happens, and the United States takes a leadership position saying, I'm going to be the leader in trying to solve that problem. I'm going to work with other countries. We're going to be in this all together. Until that happens, then trust is going to be a problem. And I think as a planet, we're just, you know, we're going to fail, you know, solving those critical problems and understanding how important they are. Mm. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more from the standpoint that we have to embrace the fact that we're all here together on the planet. 7.8 billion. Mm -hmm. We're heading towards 8 billion human beings on this planet. Yeah, we'll be at 10 billion pretty, I mean, in a not too distant future. And that's kind of a scary thought in one sense. Yeah. Because um, we... And, and in spite of the fact, and this is what's really interesting, there are those who are really concerned, for example, that um, in spite of the fact that the population continues to grow, uh, there are those who are saying it's not growing fast enough. And I'm going, well, how fast is it supposed to be growing? Right. <laughs> and, and, and many of them are in business. And uh, the only reason that they want the population to grow is so they have more people to sell their things to. And I'm just wondering about that mindset in regards to, uh, especially in America, I know that this is probably true to some degree in Europe and other developed countries, you know, similar to the West, mm -hmm. uh, that we're very consumer driven. And I'm not going to say whether that's right or wrong, but that's the reality of things. Uh, and I'm just wondering if there is a mindset that you are looking at as far as aligning the dots that uh, is starting to take a look at that and saying, OK, we need to we need to slow that train down, so to speak, because we don't need more things here. You know, we need to we need to focus on people and taking care of our citizens uh, in our countries and around the world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the core issue, the core of your point is to me the definition of success. As long as we define success as a financial positive outcome for shareholders, then the consumerism will dominate and will will be will be there has to has to exist now if you want to change the definition of success and that success is not maximizing shareholder value but success is maximizing you know happiness and a certain level of education and and you know a basic you know rights of being healthy and being helped if you have health issues then you start to look at it very different and by the way, that second definition of success doesn't exclude, you know, making money and, and realizing real value. But I think the value, the monetary value outcome is a consequence of the second definition of success, not the definition itself. 
And if you start to think along those ways, then you know your your lens through which you're looking at business is completely different. Your paradigm is completely changing, and and suddenly you know you look at a very different approach to business, and that will actually tell you that, for example, increasing the number of people on this planet dramatically is not a good thing. You know, it's not necessarily what we want because we can attend to the education and the health of all those people and the well-being of the, the, all those people. And and I think that's the fundamental issue. It's a definition of what success really means. Well, I, I, I find it interesting, too. Um, you know, we talk about the issue of climate change. We talk about these concerns that we have. I don't even get into a conversation with people about the science of climate change. I say, put that aside. Mm-hmm. Put that aside right now, okay? Don't you think we should just clean up our home? Period. People sure. want, there, there are initiatives, especially here in California, where they want to go all electric. And there are arguments over that because, well, all right, so, so everything goes electric, electric cars and electric homes and all this kind of stuff, but you still have to generate the power. Mm-hmm. And so you're still going to have to burn fossil fuels and so forth. It's like, well, maybe today, but why aren't we looking forward tomorrow to alternative forms. And then, yes, there's solar. Yes, there's wind. Yes, there's geothermal. I don't see nuclear as a clean energy source because of the waste product. That's See, the, the people who claim that uh, nuclear is clean, it, they're saying it's clean because when the, gener- the, the power is generated, there, there's no pollutants put out. But the reality is, at the end of the process... When you have to decommission a power plant, a nuclear power plant, you've got all this radiation and radioactive material, and we can't even touch it for right. for a period uh, for a long period of time before we could years, right. maybe maybe process it and use it some other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, now it is true that nuclear is clean in the definition that you get, which is when I produce, you know, a, a megawatt per hour of current, Mm -hmm. I am not polluting the planet. That is true. But you're right. I mean, the problem is the combustible has to be disposed. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it is a real problem. Now, you know, if you if I do not believe that you can produce energy with zero uh, emission whatsoever, because even if you use solar cells, for example, Mm -hmm. you still have to manufacture them exactly dirty. And then you have to dispose of them. What do you do with them? Ah. That's dirty as well. Mm-hmm. So the the utopia of producing energy that is absolutely free in terms of emission and completely clean, it just doesn't exist. Well, even photosynthesis isn't clean. Mm-hmm. I mean, from, from that kind of definition, photosynthesis and, and what the plants do is they take in the CO2, right? Mm-hmm. Guess what? Nobody thinks of it this way. Their waste product just so happens to be that which we need to breathe. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's right. their waste. That's right. Think about I mean, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. so th- but, but by the same token, we do, need to think, we do need to think differently, don't we? How do you encourage uh, new and existing businesses 
uh, to start thinking. And, and I guess the other part of that question is not only how, but what are the, the, the main principles that you want to encourage them to start thinking about, considering? You're not saying you need to change. I'm just putting these out here for you folks, and I would like for you to consider them. What, what, where do you start with, with a business that says, we know we need to do something differently? Uh, Philip, where do we start? Well, I think I think that the, the the core of the book and the core of what we do uh, at Blue Dot, which is the management consulting firm that I that I uh, that I run, is all about growth. So it's all about growing, and when I mean growth, what I mean is is the revenue, the top line. Now there are many many businesses that are not concerned about growth. If you are a restaurant owner and you serve you know, 200 meals a day, then you cannot really grow. The only way you can grow your revenue is by adding tables, which obviously the pandemic is doing the opposite, mm-hmm. or, you know, or increasing your price, which you can do to some extent, but there's a limitation there. You're not going to double your price overnight because you would, your business would mm-hmm. you know, you'd go out of business. So if you look at a dentist, a you know, restaurant owner, most of small businesses which, by the way, is is a very large portion of the GDP in this country. They actually they actually contribute more to the GDP than the Silicon Valley kind of startups mentality. So those are not really interested in growth, and that's fine. And and I think you know it, they are more in the in the protecting their cash flow kind of mode, which is you know to attend to the lifestyle of the owners and 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 the employees and all that. And that's that's perfectly fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Then there's the second category of companies that have to grow, and it's a matter of survival. You know, if you don't grow, if they don't grow, their competitors are growing faster, they are losing market share, they are on a path to become irrelevant, and they will eventually die. So they have to grow. There is no, you know, and, and I think that as soon as you take a dollar from an investor, the expectation is the value of the company when they sell that share has to be much higher than when they bought it. Therefore, the only way to do that is by growing the business. So the real interesting question to me is that if growth matters for those businesses, and it does, then the question is, you know, it's Monday morning at eight o'clock, what do I do to grow my business faster? And it's a deceptively simple question. It's a little bit akin to saying, what do I do on Monday morning at eight o'clock to be a good parent? Well, there is no simple answer because parenting is like, you know, running or building a business. It's very complicated. It's changing all the time. And you have to find a way to answer that call. And in my opinion, the only way to successfully grow, and I actually do not know any other way, is to make sure that your business and your market are perfectly aligned. It's the misalignment between the market and the business that makes companies slow down. Maybe like a mechanical watch. If you misalign the gears, they will start to slow down. And eventually the watch will, you know, stop ticking. So that that's really the core, you know, to grow is alignment. Now, I would take it you probably deal with companies and businesses globally, correct? Yes, I, I think that's correct, yes. Uh, there are some countries I would venture that uh, might put up a little bit more resistance, especially countries maybe like Russia, the Russian mm-hmm. countries, the Soviet countries, uh, China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you do anything with North Korea, uh, those kinds of countries that supposedly uh, are our adversaries. Uh, 
at, at some level. Uh, so I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, what, what kind of reception do you get in that regard? Uh, is, there, is there ever any suspicion, always oh, trying to manipulate us to do this, that, or the other thing, to conform with the West, you know, and, and, and all those kinds of things? And yet I remember interviewing a woman not long ago. She wrote this real thick book having to do with uh, doing business in Asian countries and mm-hmm. that you cannot go into any of those countries for example, and do business as you would, say, uh, in New York or Los Angeles or even mm. the Midwestern, Midwestern United States because they don't – that's not the way they operate. They have a whole their, – their culture is, is tied into, is part of, um, assimilated into their business, into just about every part of their lives. And mm. there are certain rituals, traditions, you, there are certain things that you don't want to say. Because if you do, you have insulted them, those kinds of things. So you literally have to take a course, if you will, in, in etiquette, Asian etiquette for that particular country. Uh, what about the, your translating your message to these other cultures around the world? Well, I think the message is the same. I mean, I think that I would tell a business in North Korea or Russia or China or any other country, if you do want to grow, you still need to understand your market and align with that market. If you're not aligned with your market, you're not going to grow. Now, it is true that the way you conduct business in those countries is dictated by the culture and the way they want to conduct business. So you have to understand and adapt to the way they do it. So that's one part. The other part is they are playing with different rules. So their, their playbook about businesses is different than ours. So then you have a choice to make as a, as a business in the US, you said, well, Am I going to play with those with their rules, which are very different than ours, or am I or am I going to decide not to play? And if you decide to play and you bring your rule into that game, then it will never work because they're going to say, "Well, I don't care the way you do it. That's not the way we do it here." So you have to adapt, um, and that's hard. And that's a, that's a choice that the business has to make. Am I willing to go with the rules, whether I like those rules or not? They are what they are. I cannot change them that I have to adapt. Again, it's back to adapting, you know, which is the earlier part of our conversation. We're talking with uh, Philippe, and it's uh, Bozo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philippe Bozo. He's the author of Aligning the Dots. The only reason I stopped there was because uh, this is part of the whole conversation we just had, that you just talked about. I find it extremely insulting if I am not pronouncing someone's name correctly. It's their name. And I find it fascinating when I listen to interviews with others and the, the, the host just butchers their name and does not even make the effort. Uh, I have a feeling that that's kind of what went on in Ellis Island at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century. Uh, they couldn't pronounce the name, so they changed it. And I thought, oh, come on. <laughs> and then decades later, the family finds out, oh, that wasn't our real name. Our right. real name is, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I want to show you that respect. And I'm sure that you probably have to go through that same process with people around the world that you're dealing with, right? Yeah. I mean, I always try to understand, you know, that culture. You know, I, I'm from Europe. I immigrated to the United States, you know, 31 years ago. And so I'm, I'm obviously sensitive to that. Now, the, the, the thing, the extraordinary thing about Silicon Valley is you have people from all over the world. I mean, all over the world different types of culture. And that's very appealing to me. And I think Silicon Valley would not be Silicon Valley without that. 
So, you know, the difference of cultures, you know, I traveled for a lot in my life, and met unbelievable people all over the world. And um, I think it's fascinating. It's fascinating to meet people who are, you know, sharing 99.997% of your genes, yet they are so different, you know, in many, many ways and trying to understand their mindset, how they live, how they think, what's important to them, what matters, I think is fascinating. And, and I think it's just exciting. Well, Philip Bozo, Aligning the Dots, that's the website, AligningTheDots.com. It is the new paradigm to grow any business. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, uh, along the same lines as uh, Philip. Uh, but what I want to ask you in regards to what you have repeatedly stated, the phrase you've used over and over again is growing your business as well as it says here, obviously, in the subtitle, A New Paradigm for Growing Any Business. Um, there was a period of time in my lifetime, and it was back in 2008, when they said there were certain companies that were in jeopardy that needed to be bailed out because, uh, but they used the phrase, they were too big to big. fail. Right. Right. And there was a part of me that's going, wait a minute. I thought part of the, uh, the system of capitalism was uh, let the market determine. Let the market determine who's, what's going to be bought and sold. Let the market determine who's going to survive. And when, they, when the gover our government bailed, uh, I think it was AGI and several others out, I thought, that's not capitalism. That's not free enterprise. That's, I don't know, I don't know if it's socialism or not, but it's certainly not capitalism. And I thought, look, if you make a mistake, you make a wrong decision that jeopardizes your company and it ends up failing, why would you expect somebody to bail you out? You screwed up, right? Mm -hmm. So... What about that aspect of growth and survival? Now, the pandemic, yes, it brought in a whole plethora of, of issues that a lot of people are still complaining about to this day. And I understand. I get it. But I'm trying to understand uh, from your perspective, Philip, um, this aspect of survival in the market, growth in the market, how, how fast should one's company grow? Uh, you know, why, why can't I just, you know, it's, it's like there, there never seems to be enough. Right. But, but so I, I think you're making a lot of really good points. The, first of all, you know, the 2008 financial crisis and, and the COVID-19 crisis are completely, completely different. I mean, you know, they, they don't even compare. I mean, it's two completely different. Sure. Things. Right. Exactly. The 2008 crisis wasn't because companies were growing too fast or too big. It was because they bent the rules. Right. And they didn't follow the rules. And they decided to play with trust of people. And they, because of that, they created a very complicated financial system where the truth was hidden and certainly not easy to see until you know the bubble had to explode it was just too big and it exploded i am still surprised that even as of today 
there has been very few convictions and people going to jail for what mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand personally why what happened there. So if you bend the rule in my book, you pay the price, you're caught, you pay the price. And should you die as a company as a consequence of bending the rules? I think it's okay. I think the answer is yes. Now, having said that, the interesting question is, should the government be the government be in the business of bailing those businesses or not? I think the question is if the government doesn't bail them. So, so there's a philosophical view on it, which is mm -hmm. either way is fine, but there is a, a pragmatical, pra, a very pragmatic view on it, which is okay. If I'm the government and I don't help those companies, what is the consequence beyond the fact that they die and shell, their shareholders is paying the price? Well, if the consequence are that the whole economics is going to collapse, so there's going to be a massive pain for all kinds of people that have nothing to do with this crisis, then you know the question is, what is my role as a government? Should I allow that crisis just because you know those companies or those institutions didn't follow the rules? And why is this fair that all those millions of people will pay a price? They have nothing to do with it. Or should I just not bail them and let them fail and say, you know, they failed because they broke the rule? And having the consequence of millions of people suffering from that, again, we're not connecting. And I think that's the, that's the dilemma. I think that's the dilemma the government has to make. Yeah. And I can argue both sides of the coin, uh, but I think at the, the end of the day, that's what the administration had to weigh in. And that's, that's the choice they made, um, which probably was, from an economic standpoint, the right choice. But from a philosophical and, you know, and, and question of, you know, is this okay to bail? Probably not. Um, but, you know, you can ignore the pragmatism, the consequence of not bailing and what sure. it means. And, I mean, and it's, it's a tough choice. Yeah. It's a really hard choice. I mean, millions of people were, were still hurt in spite of the bailout. Oh, and for many, so, yes. you know, what is it? Six of one, half dozen of the other. Millions are going to be hurt if they don't. Millions are going to be hurt even if they do. So, you right. know, it's I guess it's I guess you weigh at the, the lesser of the two evils, so to speak. Right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's why it's hard. Um, and and the other thing is that it is a very complicated situation. I think it's very hard for people to even understand what happened, and and you have to get into the into the details of you know of how they packaged you know those those mortgage you know uh, loans. It, it it is not it is complicated and it's hard for you know people with not financially astute to really understand what happened. And I'm one of those that uh, you know it's like I know what two plus two is, and I remember uh, several years ago I read this article regarding what they referred to as the new math. Mm -hmm. uh, you may remember seeing this. I don't know, but I I was fascinated by the new math, and here was the philosophy. Uh, in, in the old math is two plus two is four. The new math is, children, let's discuss what two plus two is. Right, right. It says math doesn't work that way. Right. It just doesn't work and, that and way. It's, you're right. It's a little bit what happened. I mean, it's not it's not that easy. Yeah. Um, uh, Philippe Bouzeau is my guest, and uh, we're talking about uh, aligning the dots. It's the new paradigm to grow any business. Um, I want to get back to the subject of uh, business growth. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, I've said this over the years, time and time again, uh, it's sort of quoting, uh, uh, part of the, partially quoting of uh, Will Rogers' statement, uh, that you can lay economists end to end and they'll still all point in different directions. Mm -hmm. 
But what I find fascinating is it doesn't matter what the numbers are at any given point in reporting of GDP or whatever the economic numbers are that they're reporting. Economists are never happy. Right. Uh, it's like even when the numbers are up, they're still not happy. So, well, so uh, my question to the economist is, what numbers would make you happy? Well, the answer is there are none. There are none because they're always looking to the future. Sometimes it's short term and sometimes it's long term. Uh, and um, I tell people, I said, look, you know, you're worried about the stock market today from yesterday and the day before. Let me have you go back and look at the historical movement of the stock market from the day it was created. What direction, if you span it out, and I don't know how old this stock, I know it's, what, 100 plus years? The yeah, only sure. direction the stock market has gone is right. up right. over the course of its history. So if you will just calm down, <laughs> and I see you, yes, there's a little dip here and there's a little dip there. Sometimes it's a big dip. We had the big correction in 2008. We've had others. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, who, who knew that in, uh, what was it, 2019, 2018, we'd hit 30,000? I mean, that mm -hmm. was pretty phenomenal considering where we were in 2008 at, uh, what was it, six or seven or 8,000? I forget what the exact number was. Yeah, and in 1999-2000, there was a massive correction. Yeah, uh, and corrections, they even talk about that. But here we are in what we would call what? The new economy. It's a global market here in the 21st century. We're in 2021. And uh, things are not the same as they used to be. Uh, and and uh, I know you would probably agree with me that for many decades in the 20th century, especially, but even into the 21st, the stock market was not driven by anything logical. It was driven by emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Is that in any way, shape or form starting to change? Well, I think it's changing in a way that the stock market is driven by computers now and algorithms. Um I was visiting a Goldman Sachs uh, training uh, facility in London. I don't know, it was 2008 maybe. There were like 350 traders in a room. I mean, it was full of screens, people trading in and out. I saw that place a few years later um, and there were like 10 people in the room. I was, I couldn't believe it. All the trading now is happening with computers in, in micro milliseconds. Um, and, and so in a way, we as people don't really control the stock market anymore. Now, it's true that also the, the fact that more and more consumers get into trading with applications like Robinhood, for example, that's disrupt or that's changed the market. I shouldn't say disrupt, but change the market. And that's an effect on that. That's true. Um, but I think that I think you're right. It's a matter of perspective. If you step back and look at that curve over the past 50 or 60 or 70 years, it's only going up. And people forget, you know, you have to, I, I always tell my kids, you know, they complain about something. And I always say, look, you should be happy with what you have, not unhappy with what you don't have. And, and then, you know, and, and it's like, we need to, I'm, I'm on the board of a company, you know, and we, we raised, you know, some money last year, the CEO was excited. And then he very quickly moved the conversation to, you know, closing a big deal with a big customer customer and I stopped him I said look we just closed a round of financing in a pandemic it was a difficult process let's just pause there 
and let's find a way to celebrate. I mean, we can meet face to face, but let's just let's just enjoy that moment. I mean, this is this is something that is important. That was hard. Let's not move on the next thing. Let's just focus on this for a second. And um, and and I thought it was really important to put things in perspective and said, you know, you have to look at the big picture. You know, there's a lot of good things going on. There's unbelievable people trying to change the world, trying to make a positive impact. We should celebrate that. That's more important than complaining about, oh my gosh, you know, the stock is down 0.75% today. Like, so what? <laughs> Tomorrow could be up. Yeah. You, do, you just don't know. Philippe Bozo yeah. is my guest. Uh, Aligning the Dots. Aligningthedots.com is the website. We will be linked to that website uh, for you, Philippe, so that people can, Philip, so that we can uh, guide people to that and maybe get more information, get a better understanding. Uh, and speaking of understanding, <clears throat> I want to ask you this question, and I've put it in these terms. I hope I was correct in putting it into these terms over the years. Uh, my understanding of the stock market to kind of wrap this part of our conversation up uh, is that the stock market was originally set up so that investors could um, support a business because they liked what that business was producing, whether it was a product or service. Mm -hmm. And so they would invest X number of dollars into uh, that company. And then they, of course, would get their money back plus a little return if the company did very, you know, did well. That was the original purpose, if I'm understanding correctly, of the stock market. But that isn't what the stock market's for. People are using it as a, an ATM machine, you know, uh, yeah. put money in, hope the stock goes up, then take it out because now they got more money. They don't really care so much about the company and what the company produces other than profit for them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And then if you look at cryptocurrencies, it's even worse because people buy a coin, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or there's you know hundreds of coins. And you ask them, you say, well, what does that coin do? You know, what value does it represent? And they have no clue. They don't know. And so it's even worse because it's like people are buying, they are buying and selling things that they have no idea what it even is. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, Peter Walken was a was a legend, uh, and, or you know, is a legend in the venture capital business here in the Valley. And and I, I had a chance to work with him, I mean, closely. And he told me, and he studied AVIs, his associate venture investors, back in '81 or '82. And and I asked him, I said, "Why did you? How did you invest?" He said, "Well, it's very simple. We had a dinner with the CEO, you know, me and a couple of friends." And uh, we asked the CEO, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? What's your company? How do you win? What's your product? And if we like the CEO, we will literally write a check at the end of the dinner and invest. We would just give him, you know, $1,000 and say, look, I like you. I, I want to support you with the check. That's the way, you know, venture capital was at the very beginning of the early days of in Silicon Valley. And then I, now I look at it today where funds have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to invest. And I don't recognize that spirit. And I, I don't, you know, it's exactly what you say with the stock market, the same thing. It's a completely different animal. And in a way, we lost, you know, we lost a human touch. We, we, we lost understanding that there are human beings behind those companies that are sweating, that are working really, really hard. And, you know, it's because of them that, you know, the stock market exists today. It's because of them value is created. It's because of them great products are being produced. Mm. And we should acknowledge and we should recognize that and we should never forget that. And by the way, you, you're so, so good at leading me into my next subject uh, in that um, I want to talk about 
something that's a little bit more metaphysical. Mm-hmm. And you just brought that up. And that is the soul, the heart, the spirit of a business, of a company, of an entrepreneurial venture, if you will. And that element is that part of the conversation that you have with people in regards to this new paradigm for growing your business. And I'll, I'll just put this out real quick. Here in Santa Barbara, we have hundreds of restaurants. And, the, and, and many people say, oh, I'd love to start a restaurant. I got these great recipes and, you know, I'd really love to share these with people, you know, to feed them and this and that and the other thing. And this one individual that uh, uh, would be posed with these kinds of comments would say, okay, um, let me ask you a question. Now, he already had the answer in his mind as to what the answer should be. He says, let me ask you a question. Why do you want to go into business and open a restaurant? And they would go through that comment. Mm-hmm. Recipes, food, da, 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 serving people. And the guy would say, wrong. You go into business to open a restaurant to make money. And I'm wondering if... An individual does go into business, uh, let's say with a restaurant, to share those recipes, to serve the public and his specifically his community, people he knows. You know, he's not going to give them food poison. He's going to make sure that everything is clean and everything. Um, isn't that enough? So well, I think. What about uh, the soul, the well, heart of a of a, a company, no matter how large or small? I think the soul and the heart is everything. I mean, look, I, I spent three years at Apple. I worked at Apple for three years. The last year, I worked directly for Steve Jobs. And, and yes, by the way, Richard, if you ever wonder, that's how I lost my hair. <laughs> but, but there is, uh, good. There is, but I can tell you that Steve brought that soul back to Apple. In 1997, the company was in, in, in very big trouble. We were running out of money. In fact, Microsoft, Bill Gates wrote a $50 million check to Apple. Prince Alway, he wrote the other $50 million check. We were running out of money. The company would have to close. We were in a very difficult situation. Steve, as a human being, with all the positives and negatives that he had, really brought this spirit back to Apple. I mean, it was, it was amazing to see. Without Steve, Apple would probably not exist today, I would venture to say. Um, if somebody comes to me, and, and so the why question is critical. Larry King used to say, you know, people ask him, say, well, what's your favorite question to ask, you know, when you interview people? And he always said, why? He said, I always ask why. He said, because they, it opens up the conversation. It takes me, it takes them to a place that I wouldn't have imagined. And when I meet an entrepreneur or, or, or CEO, I always ask them, and, and before I would never invest in a company without understanding the motivation behind, you know, why they wanted to go into that business. And if the answer is to make money, I would never invest. Mm. That is not making money is a byproduct, is a consequence of success, but it doesn't define success. That is not the reason to start a business. You know, you look at the best musicians in the world, they are passionate and they spend hours and hours practicing. And why do they do that? Because of the love of music, because they have something to say. They never do that to make money. I mean, they don't make money, period. Artists, yeah. the same. So the why, you know, is the core 
reason is, is to, has to be understood. Why am I doing this? People, it's, ideas are very cheap. I mean, I can give you five really good ideas right now. The problem is, is transforming this idea into a real business where customers buy, they are happy, they talk to their friends. And if you don't have a why, if you don't know why you're doing this, if I don't know why I should buy your product, then it makes things really, really difficult and they can't sustain. I mean, it's not going to work. Have, have you ever thought about the, the marketing end of a business, of a company, uh, and I have, uh, that um, promotes its product exclusively as opposed to a company whose advertising or marketing goes after its opponents, its competition? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, go ahead. Apple does that. I mean, Apple is promoting... And it's not even the product, but it's the emotion, right? I mean, Apple is yeah. promoting the emotion that connects you to the product. It's not the brand. It's not Apple. It's not the competition. Um, it's certainly not the tagline. In fact, Steve would never advertise anything else than the product. I mean, it was a picture of a product or a, a movie, but it was an emotional connection with that movie, with that product. With, with the results of using that product, I would say, not even the product itself. Um, and, and Steve actually never cared about competition. He would never have that conversation. He said, I don't care what they are doing. This is where I'm taking the company. This is where I'm taking the product. This is Ooh. where I'm taking the new emotions of our customers. This is how I'm changing the world. He couldn't care less about the competition. He just didn't care. He just didn't spend one second on it, uh, on that. It, was, it didn't matter. In all the years I've been in this business, uh, broadcasting, 40-plus years, um, I have never cared about the competition. I always tell people, look, my job is not to compete with anybody else. Mm -hmm. My job is to make sure that what we do today is better than yesterday and tomorrow is better than today. And that's not to say that yesterday was bad or today was bad. Uh but focus on, and so I, I love the fact that <laughs> I've had that mentality of the of jobs uh, from my very beginnings. Yeah, that's, that's, and and, that's and look, right. if if there's somebody in the station that I've worked for who wants to do that, hey, go for it. And you want to make decisions and make changes and so forth, fine. And then I will create what you want me to create for this station, so we sound the best. However, I did work for a radio station that I found out after the fact after I'd been laid off, uh, that their whole purpose was to be a tax write-off for the owner. So they didn't want improvement. They wanted it to fail. And had I known that, I never would have taken the job, of course, but they're not going to tell you that. And to me, that is so disingenuous to your employees, to the people who count on that particular company for their livelihood, let alone... Yeah, um, and this was this was one other aspect I wanted to bring up as far as the heart and soul of a company, and that is the product or service that they provide that is quality. I don't know about you, but when I hear the num the uh, the news stories come out about the cars that are being recalled by a particular manufacturer, going mm-hmm. back three, four, five, six years, and I f- I did find out why. It's because it takes that long for them to really become aware that, oh, we, we engineered that part badly, and so now we have to go back and we got to recall these cars and we've got to re- retrofit them and so on and so forth, which is very expensive, but I guess that's kind of the name of the game in one sense. 
because you can't guarantee everything. But it still brings into question the engineering, the level of engineering that they're doing based upon the knowledge that they already have of the materials that they're working with to create the product they're creating. And just mm -hmm. because it's made in America doesn't mean it was made well. That's right. And that's that's what bothers me also is people promote a company because of where it's located. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think quality, uh, and it's okay to have a, a lower quality product as long as you tell people. You said, hey, yeah, you can buy, you know, the Ferrari or you can buy my car, which is, you know, 20 times cheaper. And, you know, it's not going to have the same qualities of the engine and the way you it handles on the road. That's perfectly yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, quality is important. I mean, if you if you get a copy of my book, you'll see that it's a full, first of all, it's a full color. Every page is in full color, which is very rare for business books. In fact, I've never seen a business book. I'm sure they are, but I've never seen a business book that is full color inside. Mm -hmm. I took the highest quality of paper. The smell was important to me. I told the, the printer, I said, send me copies, send me books with the same paper. I want to know how it smells. And many people just wouldn't care about that, but I do because I worked at Apple and because I know it's important because quality projects value and it projects, you know, the care and of the heart and, and you know, my sweat that I put into this book. And that's a philosophy that I, I learned from Apple. And, and it's not for everyone. You know, I've been, I've been, uh, you know, some people think I have OCD of quality and I take that as a compliment. I said, great. Yeah, that's why I am. I do care about details. Steve cared about every single detail. If you open, if you buy an iPhone and you open the box, the way you take out the top, the little thing that you can grab, I mean, all that is heavily engineered. It is not by accident. The experience, the quality, but that's what, that's what makes Apple. Yeah. And some people will say, I don't want to buy an Apple because it's an iPhone because it's too expensive. I completely respect that. That's fine. If you want to have a lower quality product and you're willing to sacrifice quality for a better price, I think that's there's a huge market for that. Yeah. In fact, it's probably a bigger market for that. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Um, but I think it's a matter of aligning and, and it's one of the alignment axes in the book. It's aligning. I, let me step back. I think that every business, regardless of what the business does, where it is, how big it is, the business model, the kinds of products or services it sells, I do believe that there is one and only one business on this planet, period. There is no two businesses. There's only one business. And that unique business is the manufacturing and delivery of delight. Mm. When, when you bought your hat, beautiful hat that you have, I am sure you expected some kind of experience and, and some level of delight as you bought and acquired that product and you used it, that delight expectation has to be met. Now, it could be a very low expectation. Mm -hmm. you know, if I go to McDonald's, obviously, I'm not going to have the same expectation as a three-star Michelin restaurant you know, in Paris. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But whatever expectation I have of delight, that expectation has to be met. There cannot be an impedance mismatch between what I expected and what was delivered to me. And Apple's view is I'm going to put a very high level of expectation of delight and I will fulfill that. I will deliver that. That's the business they are in. You know, wow, what you just said, especially about the book, the smell of the book. And, and what came to mind first was the experiences that I have had 
going into bookstores, going into libraries. Uh-huh. There is, and then I remember too, my father. He worked for a printing company. He printed checks. Okay, mm-hmm. and he would come home with the smell of that ink right. on his on his uh, on his clothes. It was more just the, the the aroma. He didn't have ink on him, but anyway. Uh, yeah. But it's like there is something. I guess the word is visceral about mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's really uh, something that people need to to take a look at. And and for him to go to that degree of awareness to to uh, create a product, um, and even though I understand exactly what you are saying when you state if you want to buy a lower quality product. That is not demeaning the product that they want to buy because it's cheaper. Not by any means. And I get that from you. Okay? Because you're not out. You don't attack. Uh, and by the way, this, this applies not just to products and services, but even in politics. If I hear an ad from any candidate running for an office and they attack their opponent, I'm done with them. I want nothing to do with them because what that tells me, and I think Jobs got this more than anything else, is that if you attack your opponent, your competition, that tells me that you don't have enough confidence in the product or service that you are providing, even as a politician, that you have to go out and do this. Yeah. You cannot define yourself without the context of somebody else. Therefore, you don't know who you are. That's the fundamental issue. Yeah. And Apple, they know who they are. I guarantee Apple knows who they are. Yeah. yeah. Many, many other companies competing against Apple, they think they should be Apple. They want to be Apple. And it's like, this is the last thing they should do. Yeah. They just don't know who they are. They don't have the why. They don't understand who they are. And it's, it's sad in many ways. Yeah. Let me ask you a question in that regard. Mm-hmm. How important... Is it or should it be for a company to be number one, not to strive to be number one, but to be number one? It, it, it just seems to me that there is almost in some companies that have made it, let's say, to the top spot for their industry. There's almost an arrogance about them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but the other companies are two, three, four, five, and six. And what's wrong with that? What's, you know, I mean, yeah, it's great if we could all come in first, you know, but somebody has to be second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And it encourages third, fourth, fifth, and sixth to strive for number one, which is a good thing both for the company as well as for the consumer. But what about that particular drive as a, you know, the competition versus some level of cooperation, which we kind of have seen in the pandemic with the pharmaceutical companies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the goal of being number one is, is, is bad. I mean, first of all, every market, you can take, you can take any market, the... 80% of the value of that market is probably defined by 10, 15, you know, 20 companies. So the problem with number one is there is only one number one. That's the problem, right? And it's like it, it, 
it doesn't, the goal should never be, you know, Apple doesn't wake up in the morning, I said, saying I want to be number one. In fact, Apple is not number one. They are not the largest seller of smartphones. They are not the largest seller of PCs. Um, the Apple is not number one. I mean, they are not, but they are growing extremely fast and they're very successful. Mm-hmm. So I think somebody who says, I want to be number one, I, again, I go back to Larry King. It's like, well, why? Why is that important to be yeah. number one? Yeah. And what kind of a goal is that? Now, having said that, I think that people, that a company should have a goal of being number one in something, right? So a company that says, I'm going to deliver healthcare and I want to be the first company, I want to be number one in quality of care services, then I have a lot of respect for that. Then mm. that's fine. So th- I, I think being number one as a goal is is a bad idea, but wanted to be number one in something, whatever that thing is, I think is important. You have to thrive from being really, really good at something, whatever, again, that, 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 that something else. Could, could I sum up this new paradigm in one word? Would the, right, would the word compassion be the right word to use when it comes to the new paradigm for biz, growing a business? Yeah, I mean, I, I use alignment, but compassion is a critical component of that. I mean, I... I I like alignment because people intuitively understand that if I'm aligned, I'm going to do better. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be more successful. Um, and again, I'm not saying necessarily what they need to be aligned with, but I'm saying you need to be aligned with something, and that something is up to you. You need to decide what's important to you. Um, mm. But I do believe that compassion and respect of human beings and, and caring for others. I mean, companies are successful because of people, not despite of people. And and you have to have that compassion. I, I just, I mean, I think it's critical. We, we won't survive if we don't. Now, the, another element of this, too, is uh, when talking about the concept of number one, is that every single major, we'll call them the fo- Fortune 500 or Fortune 100, whatever you want to say, the, the, mm-hmm. those that are at the top of their game in the global market, they all without exception, started out as small, little entrepreneurial ventures. Mom and pop, maybe, especially in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, People would come here from overseas and they would start these small little businesses that -hmm. would then expand and expand and grow and they become these huge megalithic, so to speak, and I don't say that in a negative way or pejorative way, uh, uh, megalithic corporations that are now global uh, players. And sometimes I wonder if the people that are running them now, today, have forgotten their own history. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that they have. I mean... Apple hasn't because Steve came back and Steve was with Steve Wozniak, you know, were the founders and they started very small. They actually had a device where you could make international or long distance phone calls without paying. I mean, that was the original idea of the two Steves. Um, I think, but if I look at companies like HP and IBM, I mean, they were in the 80s and 70s Amazing, amazing companies. Again, back to the spirit of who founded them. Um, 
And that I look at HP today, I don't recognize it. It's like this is not the HP that I that I used to know, you know, 25 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. They lost their soul, they lost their spirit. Um, and when that happens, then the company typically tends to be on the downward. They tend to just not thrive anymore. Oh, they, and you've they, done it again. You lose, have done it again. Yeah. You, you <laughs> Steve Jobs had a vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and no one else on the planet has the same vision mm -hmm. as, let's say, Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. However, would you say that Apple today is recognizable to the Apple of yesterday in that Steve was able to share and others were able to assimilate his vision so that Apple continues to go in, let's say, in the direction that Steve Jobs wanted it, uh, wanted it to go? I think it has, and I think the reason is Tim Cook... Um, uh, who joined in the early 2000 and the, let's see, yes, early 2000, um, spent enough time with Steve Jobs to really understand how he thinks, how he looks at products and design. Uh, Jonathan Ive, which who was at Apple until recently, was really a designer that has been there forever, really understands the culture. Mm -hmm. So I think there were enough people at Apple. And in fact, if you look at the executive team today, it's pretty much the same team that was there, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people have left, but by and large, the same people. So I think that spirit has been carried forward because of that. Um, but if you look at the two founders of HP, I don't think that's true anymore. And most companies, I think, lose, you know, their founders and lose their spirit and they lose their compass. Mm -hmm. as a result yeah but I don't, think, I don't think apple has yeah and i know that 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 kind of situation can develop in a company that is around for many many decades the the person who started it and had the original vision unless mm -hmm. they're able to share that in a way that others yeah. get it yeah that the company then starts to change go in different directions and yeah. isn't as you say like hp isn't the company that they were years ago but that, but what about uh, accounting for the uh, process of evolution in a company? Well, those companies, they adapt. I mean, they have to. Yeah. So if they don't adapt, they die, regardless of the qualities of the founders. Um, you know, Apple is a different company than when I used to work there, for sure. Right. sure. I mean, there's many, many things that have changed. And um, but those companies, they understand the changes, they embrace it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a competitive advantage, competitive edge for them. And that's how they survive, you know. And if yeah. they don't, then they, they become irrelevant and then they eventually die. What about the future of business? Uh, both uh, uh, mom and pop, you know, entrepreneurial types of things that, are, that pop up. And I remember after the 2008-9 financial uh, crisis, um, many, many people, hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs. One of my thoughts, of course, going back to sort of the heart and soul of a company and an individual is, I wonder how many of those people hated their jobs. You know, and um, then there was this huge entrepreneurial boom mm -hmm. of people just said, you know, I don't want to do what my family has done for generations. Right. You know, that was what I was supposed to do. But now that's gone. So I need to sort of reinvent myself, as the phrase is. Uh, that seems to uh, and I think the same thing is going to happen here. 
in 21 and 22, 2021 and 22, mm-hmm. uh, and, and beyond, as those people who lost their jobs due to the shutdown, and then, of course, many companies aren't coming back, but other companies will be created by these individuals. For sure. Uh, I, you know, it's that's where I was talking before about these opportunities we don't even know exist yet. Yeah, yeah. I think those changes just unleash creativity and, and people are going to reinvent what they do and who they are, how they work and what they do. And, and I think that's fantastic. I mean, I think that's what innovation is all about. We're talking with Philip Bozu and we're talking about aligning the dots. Um, I understand what the word aligning is. Uh, and I know that we've probably mentioned it over and over again throughout this interview. What are the dots? Well, the dots is what you need to align. So they are they are um, eight dots to align. I mean, it's actually four pairs of two dots. Okay. And I'll I'll tell you very quickly what they are. The first one is that the pain of the customer and the claim that the business makes have to be aligned. Mm -hmm. So if you come to me with a headache, Richard, and you say, "Well, I have this headache," and I show you a stomachache pill, you will never buy my pill because your pain and my claim are different, they're not aligned. The second one is that the way the claim is expressed, which is the messaging, and the way I understand the claim that the company, that the business makes, those two things have to be aligned. So imagine I have a pill for your headache and I describe it to you in French. I mean, I'm assuming you don't speak French. Mm-hmm, no. <laughs> Even though it would be the perfect pill for your headache, you would not buy it because you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? <laughs> So those two things have to be aligned, right? What I'm, what I'm telling you, my message, and what you understand of it have to be aligned. The third one, the third axis of alignment is that the way you want to buy and the way I'm selling have to be aligned. So if I say, Richard, you can get my pill, you have to fly here to San Francisco to get it, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in Santa Barbara, why can't I just walk to the pharmacy and buy your pill there? And then the last one is related to what I talked about earlier, which is that the expected delight and, and, and what is delivered, those two things have to be aligned. Mm. So if you want to grow your business as fast as possible within your target market, you have four alignments to realize. You know, the pain and the claim, those are the, two, the first two dots. And then the message and the perception, those are the second pair. And then the purchase and the sale have to be aligned. And then the delight and the, and the delivery have to be aligned. Mm. So those mm. are the eight dots that you need to align. And if you perfectly align them, then you will grow as fast as you can within your market. And you also have a computer byte. A computer what? Byte, as opposed to a bit. Right. Uh, there are eight. Is it eight bits to a byte or eight bytes to a bit? Well, a bit is, is either a zero and one. So you have, you know, you have two positions. And then depending on how many bits you can do, you know, more or less things. I, I just, I remember, uh, I remember uh, uh, as I was getting into computers back in 1994, and of course I'm a, I'm a PC guy, but uh, computers okay. still, func- <laughs> they still function on zeros and ones regardless of Apple or PC. Nice. Um, and I remember, you know, I was buying hard drives, and of course when I bought my 512 megabyte hard drive, I thought, oh, this is huge, this will last me for a long I time. <laughs> but, now you can do anything with that. Exactly. But then there was this reformatting of the drive to where it would compress the data, yeah. 
mm-hmm. um, and so forth. Uh, MP3s, for example, the way in which I record uh, my programs and then save the file, uh, it's a form of compression, but it gets rid of the bits of data that are really not going to be heard. And I remember interviewing the guy that developed the MP3 format. Um and of course, it talked about bits and bytes and and uh, storage on a hard drive and, and in memory and so forth. And there are, you know, eight bits to a byte and then you go from there. And yeah. now we're up to holy mackerel. We're up, we're up to hundreds of terabytes. Uh, and I guess one of these days they'll be using and I don't promote the, this website per se, but we'll be up to Google Bytes, which is in an infinity. (laughs) It's 10 to to the power of 100, yeah. But data centers are using petabytes of data right now. I mean, that's what they're using. And in fact, some of them are using 100 petabytes of data. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of storage. Oh, it's it's enormous. And, uh, you know, like I I, I always found this interesting that that the software manufacturers, um, I, I thought they're getting kickbacks from the hardware manufacturers because if they build their software bigger and bigger, that means that the consumer has to buy a larger hard drive, which means they'll make money. They'll give us some of that, and we'll keep making the programs bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we went to uh, online software where you buy a, an annual subscription to the software that you use and you go it's kind of like going online to play say call of duty a video game and so forth which yeah, yeah. i think is phenomenal i think that's that, that's a, an amazing an amazing uh, um, innovation when it came to having to buy software and load it on your computer yeah by the way the history of computer used to be like this i mean you would have an x terminal if you were using unix you would have an x terminal which was kind of a dump it was actually called a dump terminal mm-hmm. that would connect to a very powerful computer you know probably down the hall and all the all the storage and and uh, processing power was done on that computer so it was kind of a cloud computing architecture but the difference is that the computer was you know not too far it wasn't really in the cloud but it was exactly the same idea. Wow. All the, done, all the processing and storage was done remotely. Well, I can tell you my very first computer was a suitcase computer. It was a core data with a small right. little green screen, uh-huh. two five-and-a-half-inch floppy drives. Uh-huh. You'd put one in A. That was the operating system. Right, and then B was the file. Yeah. And B was the file, although B, and, of course, everything was not stored on a hard drive, when you loaded it, it was stored in memory. And right, you'd right. have to, after you loaded the operating system, you had to pull that out and then put in the program. And I, my very first program, I still remember this. I started writing my book that is not the book I promote now, Choices. It's a different one. Uh, I started writing it on a program called um, First. Oh, my. Uh, oh, my goodness. I can't remember the exact title of it. Anyway, it was it was a DOS based program. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I first started. And I was able to transfer it to a three and a half, three and a quarter inch floppy mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so forth. I, it's just I, I'm I'm so thrilled to have been a part of the evolutionary process through the 90s and uh, the first decade of the 20, uh, tw- uh, 21st century as far as the uh, changes, not mm-hmm. just in computers, but how it's changed my industry of broadcasting. Everything, yeah, yeah. I you mean, know, I mean, I still remember, I still have reel-to-reels and cassettes yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, DAT recorders and mini-disc recorders, uh, but now it's like, again, 
It's, you know, on your computer, on the cloud, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, what CD? What do you need to see? Uh, just here, I'll send you the file via email. Right, right, right. It's just yeah, amazing. I mean, it's a lot. We went from atoms to bits in a big way. Oh, and I remember I was in a cab. I can't remember what city it was in uh, many years ago. It had to have been in the late 90s. And uh, they, I was talking to the cab driver, and he says, you know, when, uh, when they get to the place where they're able to uh, uh, transfer, because we were using dial-up back then, uh, mm-hmm. when we get, get to the point where they can transfer megabytes, because mm-hmm. we weren't quite there yet, uh, you're going to see an explosion. Well, uh-huh. you know, uh, it's still we're only at uh, some places it's only a 100 megabyte upload. But I know that a lot of other places, they've exceeded that because they have much more powerful systems and and transmission. Um, And, of course, the conversations about bandwidth. And, you know, I I refer to that as the pipeline. Matter of fact, with computers and and, uh, networking and electricity, I use the uh, analogy of water. The bigger your pipeline is, the more water you can flow through, whether it's electricity or whether it is data. Uh, But how do you make that pipeline bigger without making the actual pipe bigger? And they are they're doing it. And it's just amazing where we're headed next. Um, And sometimes it's a little scary, my friend. It's a little scary. (laughs) Philip, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. This has been been a pleasure. Absolute thrill uh, to learn from you. Alignment, that's the word. I'll, I'll add to it just from my perspective, compassion, because mm-hmm. I, I, I hear that coming from you, uh, that uh, it would be great if every business succeeded. But I would venture also, Philip, as we wrap this up, that sometimes some companies only have a certain I'm going to use the term half-life, that mm-hmm. they're, they're not necessarily intended to go on forever. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I look at, for example, the horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. Okay, it didn't because we came up with the automobile. And eventually the automobile will become obsolete because of whatever the next, whatever the next innovation is. Yeah, remember Blockbuster? I do remember, and I've seen the movie too, The Last like now Blockbuster. Would be, now that would be relevant, but they were they were a very important company for many many years, and they were part of the transition. So now they're part of the history. So they played their role. They played their part. Yeah, it's yeah. very important. And Apple is the same way. Microsoft mm-hmm. or whatever, HP, Dell, whoever you want to list, and far as computers, um, radio station, ever, it's all temporal. Is that another lost concept to some folks? Is that you know, it would be great if your company was around through infinity, but that is not the way this world works. It's temporal, yeah. and enjoy it while it's here. That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. Philip Buzo, thank you so much for joining us and oh, sharing. Thank you, Richard. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. I do have three final questions for you that I'd like to ask you before we wrap this up. You may have addressed these uh, during the program, but I like to uh, bring them up, uh, ask them directly. But before I do that, I want to remind our listeners and our viewers that uh, these programs are heard Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. You can also hear us on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. The podcasts are on SoundCloud. 
SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, other locations that you folks are reposting to, which I thank you so much for doing that. <clears throat> and we're on YouTube, where you can see and hear our interviews. And we will be linked in all of these cases to our guest website, which is alignthedots.com. And uh, Philip Buzo, I thank you again. And let me dive into my uh, trifecta of questions to wrap up the program. And the first is, who is Philip Buzot? Well, I'm just a humble guy who is trying to help entrepreneurs build, you know, real businesses and amazing products. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Well, I want people to connect better with other human beings and listen to them and have a different perspective and learn and grow from that. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Is to make as many people around me as happy as I can. Well, you have made me extremely happy because you've helped me to understand better Thank this you. whole process. Thank you. I'm grateful for being on your show and really appreciate it again, Richard. You are very welcome. And I thank you for listening and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lull.